All right. Let's do this again. The Lord be with you. Okay. Uh, today we're continuing our series uh, called Bringing Our Stuff to the Table, Possessions and the Way of Jesus. Um, one of the things I noticed as I was preparing this week is that the themes from week to week are very similar. I don't know if you guys have noticed that, but we seem to be saying kind of the same thing every week, <laughs> which is totally okay with me. Um, our, our sermons are not meant to be new information for you to consume, but they're meant to be proclamation of good news that we need to hear. Um, and uh, during this series, I think uh, this is obviously something that we need to hear uh, at this moment. So the themes are very similar, and I think there's a picture emerging of the ways that we idolize our possessions uh, and what that does to us, what that does to the poor, uh, what that does to the global poor, um, what that does to our world. And um, we're also learning what the gospel has to say about that. So this week, uh, we're talking about the shift from insatiable desire to the way of contentment. From insatiable desire to the way of contentment. In a world that constantly tells us that contentment will come from getting what we want. We proclaim the good news that those who are in Christ are a new humanity where contentment comes from the confidence that God is at work to supply all our needs as we provide for one another. That's the good news we proclaim today. Um, anybody ever heard a fairy tale? What's the stereotype? Yes, good. Thank you for the nodding heads. It's not a rhetorical question. I do like the interaction. Um, so uh, what's the typical, stereotypical way maybe for a fairy tale to end? And they lived happily ever after, right? That's the stereotypical way, thank you, Krista, uh, for a fairy tale to end. Um, the protagonist in the fairy tale has this wish, has this desire, has something about their life that's not quite right. Uh, they have challenges along the way, but they achieve it in the fairy tale. They get the prince, or the, they, they accomplish the task, they slay the dragon, and then they lived happily ever after. It's kind of the, the, the end of that story. They're, they're happy. They get the thing they want, and then they're happy. Uh, well, this, this idea gets turned on its head in Stephen Sondheim's musical, Into the Woods. Has anybody ever seen this musical? They made a movie about it um, a, little, uh, a little while back. And uh, what he does in this musical is he takes several fairy tale plot lines and he blends them, blends these wishes and desires of these fairy tales together into this kind of complicated tapestry. Uh, there's Cinderella, who wishes to go to the festival but can't because her evil stepmother is preventing her from doing so. There's Jack, who's a simple farm boy who wishes his cow would just give some milk. There's Jack's mother, who wishes for gold, so convinces Jack to sell the cow so we can get some money. Uh, there's the baker and his wife, uh, who wish they could have a child. There's Little Red Riding Hood, who wishes for bread from the baker so that she can bring it to her grandmother's house. Um, and there's a witch who you find out has cursed the baker so that he can't have children with inf infertility because the baker's father stole vegetables from the witch, including some magic beans that Jack ends up getting. Like, it's a very complicated tale, right? Um, where um, she also took the baker's father's newborn daughter, Rapunzel, who had this long flowing hair and imprisons her in a tower. Um, but the whole thing gets set up when the witch says, I'll reverse the curse of your infertility, baker and his wife, uh, if you will go into the woods and get me four ingredients for a potion I need to make. And you find out the witch wants something too. There's this potion that's going to do something for her. So it gets more complex from there. I, I, I read the Wikipedia page and you're like, 
I've seen this twice, and it's still dizzying. Like, what, what, what happens? It's kind of incredible how uh, all of these themes get interwoven. Uh, but these intertwining desires, these wishes, these, these things that people have in their guts that think, oh, if only we had this child, if only we had this uh, potion, if only we had some money, if only my cow would give milk, these if-onlys kind of intertwine, and, and, and we, we get this complex story that emerges from it. And it seems like not everybody's going to be able to get what they want in the story, but the interesting thing is they do. Uh, through this kind of miraculous series of events, how it all works out, Cinderella goes to the festival, she marries the prince, Rapunzel escapes from her tower and marries another prince, uh, the baker and his wife get the curse reversed and they're pregnant with a child, and it's interesting because like all of this happens and it's the end of the first act and the end of the first act is and they lived happily ever after. Everybody's congratulating themselves on now we get to live happily ever after. We got everything we wanted. But the way that he turns it on its head is that's only the end of act one. It's sort of jarring when you, when you see it live. You're like, wait, is this, is this the end of the story? We're conditioned to think that the end of the story is they lived happily ever after. But you know because you've been to plays before that there's two acts. So what else is there to say? And Stephen Sondheim turns this on his head. It's really quite brilliant because the opening of Act Two, you realize everybody got what they wanted, but everybody's still wishing for something. They're still wanting something. They're still wanting something that's not quite there. Everybody in the play uh, is wanting something. They, they seem happy, but they're still wishing and wanting. The baker and his wife have this precious baby boy, but they wish now for a bigger house. And they argue over Jack's or the baker's unwillingness to hold his child. Jack and his mother are rich and well-fed, but Jack misses his kingdom in the sky. He grew some magic beans. There were some giants involved. It was a big story. Uh, Cinderella <laughs> is living with her prince charming now, but in the palace, but she's getting bored and she wants to have another festival. And so what he reveals here, that the rest of the musical goes on and the characters undergo some suffering and some loss, and they need to accept reality as it is, etc., etc. Some characters learn this, others don't. But part of the brilliance of Into the Woods is that it reveals the emptiness behind getting everything we want. It reveals the emptiness of it, that the fairy tales aren't quite true, that there's always something, something else going on inside of us. When we jump, we just find something new to want. We jump from desire to desire, hopeful that the next thing is going to do it for us. So what is it for you? Like fairy tales, it's easy to kind of think, oh, you know, how foolish of Cinderella to think that just marrying Prince Charming would solve all her problems. But what is it for us? What's the thing that we want, that we think that's out there, this desire that we organize our life around and we try to obtain that we think is going to bring us happiness? What is that for you? Maybe it's career milestones. Some of us are trying to achieve these career milestones, climbing the corporate ladder, gaining power. Maybe it's money. Maybe we think, if only I had this much money, if only once, once I get to six-figure salary, once we can afford to buy the kids some new clothes for school every year, you know, once we can you know, fund their college tuition fully, maybe it's that for you. Maybe it's status. Like Maybe the money affords you the status. Like If only we could live in that neighborhood, have those friends, go to those parties, get invited to those gatherings. Maybe for you it's just wishing that the people in your life were different. <laughs> you ever thought about that as this wish? Like I, I can relate to this of thinking like, man, my life would be better if only my wife were different, right? If only my husband were different, if only my wife were different, uh, if only my wife was less critical, then I could be content. 
If only my husband was more considerate, well, then I could be happy. If only my kids were more obedient, I would be content. If only my parents were less distracted by their iPhones, then I'd have what I need. This is the kind of desire that the Israelites have in the passage that we read, that they're, 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 they're grumbling in the desert, and God gives them manna from heaven, which manna, it's funny that, you know how they say, like, what is it? That's, that's actually this translation of manna. They don't know what it is, and they say, what is it? And that's what they name it. You guys get some, what is it? How much, what is it did you guys gather? That's, that's the meaning of manna. Do you guys get it? <laughs> I find that hilarious for some reason. So anyway. Do you guys get some more, what is it? So anyway, um, this is... This is the, the kind of insatiable desire that gets revealed in the Israelites' hearts, that they, they get what they craved, but they want more of it. They're like, they, they want to go out and get some more. They say, like, don't go out on the Sabbath. You have plenty. But some people still go out on the Sabbath, and they try to get more of it. Like an orphan. I've heard stories about orphans who are so used to, like, not being able to trust that there's going to be enough in the morning that when they get, finally get adopted, they, they raid the fridge every night and put all the food in their bed because they just can't fathom that all of that food is just going to still be there in the morning. This is the kind of desire that gets revealed uh, in us. Advertisers have learned to inflame and even manufacture these kinds of desires to drive economic growth, to keep people buying. Once people, have had, once, once people kind of get all their needs met, well, what do we do then? Like This was a real problem <laughs> for the economists and the advertisers. They were like, People, nobody's going to buy anything else, so we have to like create desire so people keep buying stuff. We have to create it, and that's how advertising is gone. It's gone from uh, you know, just saying, like, here's the, uh, here's the benefits of our product. You know, one, two, three, four. It's the best thing on the market. Would you like one? And people decide yes or no, you know, that kind of thing. It's gone from there to, like, uh, what are, the, are those Lincoln ads with um, Matthew McConaughey, right? Like, what are those about, right? They're about like evoking the feeling. They're evoking something for people. They're like, oh yeah, that looks cool. He's dreamy. Yeah, well he is dreamy. That's part of it. Uh, but you know, uh, that looks cool. That looks like a thing that I would want to kind of be part of, right? They're, 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 they're manufacturing desire to keep people buying, to crank up this desire machine. And this is what we get fed every single day. The news that you'll be happy if you just fulfill this thing, this desire that you have. You'll be happy if you finally just fulfill it. And that, of course, doesn't just kill us, but it also then becomes the mechanism by which we oppress and exploit the global poor. My desire to have clothes on sale when I want them ends up becoming part of this system where people are exploited, people are oppressed, and we're part of that. It's all kind of connected to our desires. In a world that constantly tells us that contentment will come from getting what we want, we proclaim today the good news, though, that those who are in Christ are a new humanity where contentment comes from the confidence that God is at work to supply all our needs as we provide for one another. This good news uh, comes mainly uh, today from the, Paul's letter to the Philippians. The context in this letter, we'll look at this briefly, the context of this letter is that uh, the church in Philippi had sent Paul a gift with Epaphroditus. And so Epaphroditus comes, they'd taken up a collection, they said, Paul, we want to support your ministry, we want to be part of what you're doing, uh, just like we always have been. And he, he sends them this, this support, this material uh, support for his ministry. And Paul writes this letter back to them to say thank you and to give them some instruction. And the rest of the letter is all about that. That's the context 
Um, and actually, last week, we talked about 2 Corinthians 8. Like, this is the church that Paul writes to the Corinthians about, saying, like, the churches in Macedonia, that's Philippi. He's saying, these guys gave out of their poverty. And uh, this is the church he's talking about. So he's writing to this church, and he's thanking them for this gift. Uh, and over the course of these 10 verses that we read just, uh, just previously, he takes, these, he takes three overlapping concepts in the ancient world, and he transforms them in Christ. He transforms them into, here's, here's, here's how this works now for those of us who are in Christ, revealing a new way of being human that the gospel has brought about, where we don't need to get what we want to be content. So let's take a look at these three overlapping things that uh, get transformed in this letter. The first thing is contentment. <clears throat> uh, Paul writes that, I, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that you at last renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength, through him who gives me strength. So Paul is rejoicing greatly here in this passage um, that they were finally able to express their concern for him through this material gift. But he, he quickly goes on to say, it's not that I was in need. It's not like, it's not a passive aggressive move. Like, finally, you expressed your concern for me. Like, I've been over here waiting. You know, I haven't been able to have three square meals a day. He's not doing that. What he's doing here is he's saying, um, he, he's talking about contentment. He's saying, I've learned how to be in need. I've learned how to have plenty. And it's contentment. And initially, it would sound like a stoic idea. The Stoics were these people who were very focused on how do I reduce my dependency on any external factor in my life so that I can just be self-sufficient. That's a Stoic idea. I just want to be self-sufficient. And initially, this is what this looks like uh, in Paul. That everything I have, that everything I need, I have within myself as an individual. And I can learn how to access it and get what I need. That's a Stoic idea. Um, the ability to endure hardship. There's actually kind of a renewal of this philosophy in our day. Like, if you, like Tony Robbins kind of talks about some of this stuff. Or Wim Hof. Has anybody ever heard of Wim Hof? It's like a fitness guy. But he talk, like he's the ice man. He go, like, goes out in the cold. He tell, tells people to take cold showers and all that kind of thing. So like, there's this kind of like self-sufficient, like you can do it. Like your, your inner reserves are there. This sounds like a stoic idea, but, um, but Paul transforms it from self-sufficiency to Christ's sufficiency when he says the secret of being content in any and every situation is not go out in the cold and take ice showers. Like, the secret is that I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. That's the secret of contentment. Paul's source of strength for contentment isn't within himself, it's in Christ. It's in Christ. So it's outside of himself in a way. But of course, he's in Christ, and so he has constant access to this strength which is a huge relief for me because anytime I get, uh, anybody feel it? Like I get inspired to kind of like be my best self. I'm gonna, I'm gonna lose a bunch of weight and you know, I'm gonna eat right and you know, I'm gonna kind of like be my best self. And for, for every day that I feel that, there's probably three days where I feel like, you know what I'd really like to do today? Eat a lot of ice cream and watch television. Like that sounds awesome, that sounds really fun. Um, so this is, a, this is a great inspiration for me that I don't have to find it with myself, it's in Christ. This contentment in Christ is what allows Paul and the Philippians to participate in what Matt talked about last week, the giving and receiving of, mutual, of mutuality. 
of being a community in Christ. We give and we receive. We learn how to do that. And contentment is the secret to being able to do that. Without contentment, you're, ne- you're either going to be really reluctant and hesitant to give because you'll feel like, what if I don't have enough? Because you haven't learned how to be content with being in need, trusting that God's going to provide. Or you're going to be someone who's hesitant to receive because you like the status of being the person who's always dishing out the gifts. That's oftentimes the, the greater struggle for those of us who live in an affluent society. Is we like the, we like the privilege and the, the status of being the benefactor, the person who always has more than enough that I can just give. And so without contentment, learning how to have much, learning how to have little, will always devolve into one of those two things. But both Paul and the Philippians are in Christ together. Neither is dependent on the other for life in the world, but because they're both in Christ, Paul receives the gift with joy as if it was from Christ. And promises, we'll get to this later, but I'm too excited to not say it now, and promises that God will solve my part of the reciprocity. God will take care of my part of it, this reciprocal relationship. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. This one is this. The contentment, the way that Paul transforms contentment is that um, he says Christ is our sufficiency together. Together we rely on Christ. This is contentment. So in a world that constantly tells us that contentment will come from getting what you want, we proclaim the good news that those who are in Christ are a new humanity where contentment comes from the confidence that God is at work to supply all our needs as we provide for one another. Second thing that Paul transforms in this passage is friendship. And and he takes it from uh, just you and me being friends, trying to do what's good for each other, to you and me in Christ. And it transforms everything if Christ is in the friendship. And this is in verse 14 when he says, it was yet, so I'm content, I have everything I need, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me, except you only. Um, You sent me more than I needed, not that I desire your gifts, but I desire what can be credited to your account. Um, Paul is saying, look, my contentment doesn't mean that all of these things don't matter to me. My contentment doesn't mean I didn't need your gift anyway. That's not what he's saying. Um, What he's saying is your gift, I'm I'm excited to receive your gift, not because it's a gift per se and I like stuff. I'm not trying to get your stuff, but because of what it represents, our friendship, our partnership in the gospel. That's what's precious to Paul. That's what he's rejoicing in. This is a beautiful thing that you are partnering with me in the gospel to such an extent that even in your poverty, you have exploded in generosity and said, we want to be part of what you, what's happening in the world. So friendship gets transformed. In the ancient world, friendship was a, it's kind of an institution. It was something that, that people did with one another, but it was mainly for the benefit of the friends. It was just two people who decided, hey, we're going to be friends, which means there's a reciprocal relationship where we're going to kind of give each other gifts and provide for each other and look out for each other and take care of each other. And that's good as far as it goes. But Paul transforms it again by saying, Christ is here with us as well, which transforms it from just you and me to you and me and Christ. And so friendship gets transformed so that uh, the gifts that we give and receive with one another, Christ is in the midst there. So they're not, and, and they're not just, and because Christ is in their midst, uh, it's not just about you and I taking care of each other. It's about us participating in the gospel together, which means we have a common task, which means we're on mission together. 
And this, this is where the Luke 9 reading comes in that we read, uh, where Jesus sends out his disciples and he promises, don't, don't take anything for the journey. Everything will be provided for. That promise is for those who are participating in the gospel. It's for those who are participating in the mission of God. That's, that's who the promise is for. It's not just for anybody who, you know, wants to get a paycheck. God promises what he says is he, he said in Matthew 6.33, the same kind of a promise where he says, um, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. And my favorite translation of that is to say, uh, make it your top priority to be involved in what God is doing. Everything else will be taken care of. Everything else will be taken care of if you make it your top priority to be involved in what God is doing. So this isn't just a convenient, useful arrangement that helps Paul pay the bills and lets the Philippians feel like they're important. <laughs> this is a mutual participation forged in the gospel and sustained in Christ. The third thing is that uh, Paul transforms reciprocity. So friendships always had a reciprocity aspect to them in the ancient world. Um, and Paul transforms it by saying, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And here's why that's transforming. In the ancient world, the reciprocity that friends exchanged with one another very quickly devolved into a contest about who would give the, the most generous gift, right? So if you, if you uh, buy some groceries for me, I come back and say, well, I'm going to buy a new blender for you. And then, you know, uh, you'd come back and say, well, I'm going to buy you a new car. And I'd say, wow, thank you. That's so generous. But inside thinking like, oh, he got me. He got me. He's got the best gift now. And so now I'm going to try to buy you a house. And whoever had the biggest, best gift was the winner at the end of that thing. So the friendship oftentimes devolved into this. And the way that Paul subverts this is beautiful. And again, it speaks to this community that God has created in the gospel where he says, look, I'm so appreciative of your gift. And for my part of the reciprocity, do you know who's going to pick it up? God's going to pick up. God's going to pick up my reciprocity. And that's not a way of Paul saying, like, getting off the hook of it. Paul's not saying, you know, hey, he's not a televangelist, right, saying, hey, send me 10 bucks and God will send you 100. Right? That's not what he's doing here because uh, he's, he's, he knows these people and he knows the promise uh, that God has given to them. And so he transforms reciprocity from I'll pay you back to God's going to supply all of our needs as we participate in the economy of Christ. God supplies all our needs, so I'm grateful to receive your gift. God will supply your needs. I don't have anything for you right now, but I'm confident God will supply your needs because the gift that you gave was not just for me. It was a participation in the gospel, and any gift that's given in the participation of the gospel like that cannot but be repaid by God. It cannot but be repaid. Like, God will do it. God will supply all your needs according to his riches. And so Paul transforms these three things, contentment, friendship, and reciprocity, into not just something that Paul and the Philippians are engaging with, with one another, but into something that they're both engaging in Christ, in Christ, which changes the whole equation. Being in Christ means we don't need to play the status games of one-upping each other to keep the upper hand in the relationship. Instead, in Christ, we give and receive freely, knowing that God is ultimately the one who supplies all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And those aren't just material needs. God does supply those. He supplies material needs uh, for, for everything we need, but he also supplies steadfastness and joy 
for the Philippians to endure persecution and suffering. God supplies grace and humility so that we can advance the faith and stay on mission. God supplies comfort and peace as we walk through grief and sadness. God supplies all of our needs. His glorious riches are made available to all those who are in Christ, this new humanity, this new community, this beautiful thing that God is doing on the earth. And this is the kind of community that we're seeking to forge at the table. Uh, deep friendships, partnerships in the gospel where we give and receive freely. Uh, what giving and receiving are meant to do is not to put one another in debt, but we're, it's meant to forge bonds. It's meant to create relationship. It's meant to be part of what Christ is doing uh, in our community. And this echoes Paul's words earlier in the letter when he says, for me to live is Christ. I know what it is to, be in, uh, to have plenty. I know what it is to be in want. But Christ is completely sufficient for me, and he will be for you as well. There's a beautiful enoughness in Christ's economy, an enoughness, where we, where we have enough. God will supply our needs. No matter what, we abound if we are in Christ, in plenty and in want, in life and in death. It's a totally indestructible life that we get to live together as we trust God. In a world that constantly tells us that contentment will come from getting what we want, we proclaim the good news that those who are in Christ are a new humanity where contentment comes from the confidence that God is at work to supply all our needs as we provide for one another. So how do you need to respond to this today? Um, <clears throat> because we, we believe we haven't really responded to good news until we put our bodies on the line and do something, uh, unless, until we've ventured on it, until we've risked the possibility that it might be true. Um, so maybe ask these questions. Where are you seeking contentment in the fulfillment of your desires? Where are you seeking that contentment? Are you wanting someone else to change so that you can be okay? Are you wanting your circumstances to change so you can be okay? Are you wanting more money so you can be okay? What is it for you? How can you offer your body as a living sacrifice, trusting the Lord to supply you with whatever you think that is going to bring you? So for me... Um, I mean, Matt, Matt mentioned uh, last week that uh, they didn't buy groceries last week, and that's not a sob story. Um, but we, we, we were in the same boat uh, where we realized on Tuesday that that's Deb's normal grocery shopping day. Um, we realized, like, the, the budget's shot. Um, and we've got, you know, July was Saturday? Was it Friday? Saturday? Something like that. So it was like we had, these, we had this week, basically. Where we were like, what do we do? And I think our MO in the past has just been, for me, my MO has just been like, don't worry about it. It'll be all right. Like, we'll just, you know, we'll just get some from over here. I just think it'll be fine, that kind of thing. But I really felt convicted that, um, that part of the discipline for me to trust the Lord to provide my needs would be to stick with my budget, to say, this is, this is, we're just going to stick with the budget. And it's not like our, our cupboards were bare, you know, we didn't have any food in the fridge. We had plenty of food. It was just like, it was just time to go grocery shopping. We always go grocery shopping. We get the groceries and we, we bring them in. So we just decided we're going to eat whatever is in the house for a week. See what's, <laughs> what's here. Like if I, what happens if we don't go grocery shopping, right? Not just as a fun experiment, but as a way of submitting ourselves to the Lord, submitting our lives to the Lord and saying, well, Lord, we trust you're going to supply all our needs. Our grocery budget shot. So here we go. And you know what? We were fine. <laughs> we ate just fine. It was, it was good. But for me, that, that was a way for me to respond to that. Does that make sense? 
an act of trust to say, God, you're going to supply my needs. And so I'm going to stick to this budget that we've set out. It's very easy for me to justify, especially pleasure purchases, like, like dessert or wine or those kinds of things. Very easy for me to justify those things. So part of the response for me is to say, Look, we're sticking with the budget, and I'm going to trust that God's going to supply my needs. Um, so what is that for you? Let's just spend a couple moments in silence and um, let the Lord speak, and then we'll pray together.